14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dr. D. What's up, friends? I don't know if you can tell, but I'm really excited. For many, for many reasons. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful to be a part of this community. It's been life-changing for me, my wife, and my two babies. So I had a kid, another one. <laughs> um, so praise God. Okay, y'all ready? Okay, cool. The chorus of one of my favorite songs growing up was, please believe that somehow, some way, we gonna make it up out the hood one day. Somehow, some way, we gotta make it about this life. Come on. Somehow, some way, we gotta make it about the hood one day. Some way, we gonna make it about this life. This was a song, you never thought you'd hear a Jay-Z song in church, huh? <laughs> but this song was by Jay-Z, Beanie Siegel, and Scarface, and I would hear it frequently in the passenger seat of my father's car. In their respective verses, each rapper described experiences growing up in their respective hoods. Each expressed the hardships of poverty and how that cultivated a deep longing for a quality of life that was better than the one that they were experiencing, but not only for themselves, but also for those around them. And the reason why this song was so meaningful to me and still is to this very day, I mean, discretion advised, <laughs> but still to this day is because I've longed and I still long for a better quality of life as well. I grew up in Philly, so go Eagles, hey. Um, <laughs> I grew up seeing so many forms of violence though. Drug uses and addiction, disease, I mean death from disease. My peers getting swept up into the destructive cycles of our neighborhood, struggling to keep food in the fridge, not being able to afford utility bills, and the list goes on. And I, rem I remember thinking to myself, like, this can't be that there, all that there is to life, right? It has to be more than this. What I was longing for was to experience life to the full. Can any of you resonate with this longing to some capacity? where you spend years striving up to save enough money to buy a home so that you can cultivate a healthy environment for you, your family, and your friends. Because there's something in you that desires a life of peace and love individually and collectively. Where you spend your days begging for God to heal your child or your parent or a relative or a friend because there's something in you that desires a life of longevity for yourself and for others where you look forward to hanging out with your friends because you can't wait for the gut-twisting laughs because there's something in you that desires delight with others. There's something within us as humans where we long for a quality of life that is good, beautiful, and whole. This is evident through our attempts to shape our lives in a way where we think that, that how we shape it will satisfy the longing, and sometimes we get a taste of the goodness. But yet, even then, the longing can still persist, even after we have those good things, such as a house or a bunch of friends or those gut-twisting laughs. All of those things, that longing can still persist. Are you with me? 
There's something much deeper that you long for, that Jay-Z, Beanie Siegel, and Scarface long for, that I long for. This longing finds its origin in a story that has been told for thousands of years. Okay. Come on. Uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm a Bible nerd, so we're going to have fun with the scriptures today, okay? Okay, cheer up. Here we go. <laughs> this story is the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, there's a dry land. Look at y'all. Y'all like, look at him nerding out up there. Okay. In Genesis 2, there's a dry land, and God causes water to come up from the land. And from the ground, he forms a human being, and he breathes his life breath into the human, and that human becomes alive. And then he plants a garden in a region called Eden. And within that garden are many trees, many kinds of fruit trees. And there's two specialties that many of us, special trees, excuse me, that many of us have heard of before. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and bad and the tree of life. And they're in the center of the garden. And there's a river that flows out from the garden and splits into four. And then God places the human in the garden to work and keep it. This is the responsibility of a priest. This infers that the garden is God's temple. It is his house where he resides with humans. It's where he wants to live with humans. It's where he wants to live with humans. In his house. It's where heaven and earth overlaps, sister. And then God splits the human into two, and the two become one in marriage. Good mathematics. It's pretty dope. And God gives one stipulation for residing in his house. Hey, um, that one tree about the knowledge of good and bad, yeah, don't eat that. Because if you do, you will die. They can eat from any other tree in the garden, including the tree of life. And eating from the tree of life is God's invitation to partake in his divine life and be transformed. God wants to share his eternal life with humans. Yo, listen. God wants to share his eternal life with humans in his house. This has been the goal from the set. So what do you think he wants to do today? Come on, y'all. However, the story takes a dramatic turn when the snake, I feel like every time I'm teaching, I'm always talking about this snake. <laughs> but he's important to the story. He enters the scene and deceivingly influences the humans to eat from the forbidden tree, and they succumb to the lie of the snake, and instantly they began to die. And God came walking in the garden looking for them as they hid, not only from him but from one another. And they began finger-pointing, and God spoke of the consequences of the actions of the snake and of the humans. And the end of the scene states this in Genesis 3. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Their deaths had begun when they ate at the forbidden tree, and now something is broken within them. Has this story been familiar to many of you? But God was merciful by not allowing them to eat from the tree of life. This is an act of mercy and of judgment at the same time. Why? 
because they're dying. When you disobey, that leads to death. And God doesn't want them to live in a paradoxical way of living, where yes, if you eat from the tree of life, you'll be physically alive forevermore, but you'll also be simultaneously dead forever. This is an act of mercy. And so they were exiled out of the garden where death will fully encapsulate them one day. And death outside of the garden is a part of our story now. And you and I are dying. I've never been more aware of my mortality than what I am right now. We are dying. People are dying. I'm not going to cry today, okay? <laughs> and we long to return back into the Father's house where we were designed to live with him forever. The problem is that the way to the tree of life is guarded. The only way back into the garden is by the cherubim sword, is to go through it, and it's fatal. To make matters worse, we don't live outside of the garden alone. The snake is out here running rampant. He has authority out here. He's spreading his lies and deception. It's been twisted for a lot of years. It's still being twisted. And as the biblical story continues, though, the good news is that God doesn't abandon humanity. Rather, he forms a covenantal people that he will dwell with among outside of the garden. For the purpose of what? Returning Eden life back to the many. The purpose of Israel is very important. But he chose them so that all of humanity can be restored back to what was. He desires for you and I to live in his house, and Israel is the vehicle through, through which he would do so. Are you with me still? I feel like I'm yelling at y'all, and y'all like, dog, it's 9.30, bro. <laughs> Okay, that's encouraging. <laughs> One stage of this was in Exodus 25 where Moses is on a mountain and God begins to give him instructions for building a tabernacle where God will live with the Israelites. In Exodus 25, 8 and 9, God said, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. What's fascinating is that the tabernacle was fashioned to resemble the layout of Eden. In the tabernacle, you had the courtyard. Inside that, you had the holy place. And then inside that, you had the holy of holies or the most holy place. So the idea is that the further one went into the tabernacle, the closer you were to God's divine life and presence. However, the issue was that the people at large could not enter into his presence. Only the high priest could once a year. And even when he would do so, his life was at risk. What was once a cool walk in the day is now a dangerous venture. And the curtain that separated the holy place and the holy of holies had what on them? Cherubim embroidered on them. So the high priest had to go through the cherubim with the lifeblood of a blameless animal to present before God. And not only that, when he got to the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies, you had two cherubim on the side, and God's presence, you know, hovered above that. I wasn't there, I don't know, but was there. It's all Garden of Eden imagery. And what's dope, okay, what's really dope is that the structure of Eden is this. You have the region of Eden, then you have the garden, and at the center, you have the, are you with me? 
come on, that's it. Like, <laughs> the, the idea is the same, is that the closer you go into, the, 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 the further you go in into the garden, you go towards God's divine life and presence. But after being exiled, now you have to go through the cherubim with the sword. The tabernacle served as a symbol of God's residence among his people. It was the overlap of heaven and earth. Yet the tabernacle was not the goal, it was a means. The longing within humans for Eden life in the house of the Father could not be met in full in this stage. This was only a taste. But there's another stage in the story of God dwelling among humans, and it was the building of the temple in Jerusalem. The structure and imagery of the temple was according to the pattern of Eden as well. You had the courtyards, the temple courts, the holy place and the holy, it's the same. Yet again, the people could not enter, only the high priest. The longing within humans for Eden life in the house of the Father could not be met in full stage here either. Both the tabernacle and the temple are referenced as God's house in the Hebrew Bible, but they were designed to point us back to the garden. Humanity is in need of someone who will bring us back into the Father's house. Mm. The snake is out here spreading lies, deception, and death, and humanity is in need of someone who will lead them with truth and the re-entrance into the garden. So God took his plan to dwell with humanity to a whole nother level, y'all. We're talking about the ultimate overlap of heaven and earth, and his name is Jesus. Oh, now y'all getting excited, huh? <laughs> Boy, ain't nothing to play with. So as Jesus is preparing his disciples for what lies ahead, this man is about to go do something no other human being could ever do. We find ourselves at his final meal with them in John 13. He's washing their feet as a demonstration of how they were to serve one another. And then he begins talking about how one of them is going to betray him. Furthermore, he goes on to talk about how he's leaving them soon, but they can't come to where he's going. And Peter speaks up and asks, yo, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, I am going, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay your life down for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is an intense scene. I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty stressed out if Jesus is like, yeah, I'm out, and y'all can't come with me right now. What you mean, bro? I've been following you for the last couple years of my life. Give me the GPS coordinates, bro. I'm showing up. And to make matters worse, he says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And not only that, but Peter, you're going to deny me. I would be freaking out, too. So it's no wonder that Jesus follows up with words of encouragement in John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now listen, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, will I come back and take you to be with me? I will, sorry, I will come back to take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. 
you know the way to the place where I am going. Yo, he's like, yo, chill out. Everything's going to be okay. This is the Hakeem revised version. <laughs> Everything's going to be okay. I'm going to go prepare a place for y'all in my father's house, and there's plenty of space. I will come back to take y'all, and guess what? You know the path to the father's house. And notice that he says, my father's house. In John chapter 2, when he cleared the temple, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. But yet, in John 14, he's not talking about going to the temple in Jerusalem. So what is he talking about then? He's keying in on something that precedes and is the fullness of what the temple symbolized. And rightfully so, Thomas is confused and he's like, okay, hold on, wait a minute. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? That makes sense. How are you not going to tell me where you're going and I'm supposed to know how to get there? And then Jesus replies with one of the most famous New Testament scriptures in the world. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay, um, let's address the elephant in the room. This statement has caused a lot of controversy throughout the ages. It's caused a lot of responses that fall across a very large spectrum. Some have really disliked the elements of exclusivity in his words. Who does Jesus think he is? All paths lead to God, not just him. Who is he to say that? Some have responded as using this as a trump card over other people of other faiths and streams of thought, quickly condemning them to hell without actually getting to know them or introducing them to the one who is the way, where his words have been weaponized as permission to be hostile. Where have we come to? Some have responded with confusion causing questions like, wait, wait, hold on, wait a minute. So did the Israelites not know the Father? What about Abraham and Sarah? They were here before Jesus. What does this mean? What about King David? The man wrote Psalms. Like, we... The list of responses goes on, but we must remember the context in which he said these words. This is an encouragement. They're freaking out. And he said, no, 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 I have words of comfort for you. They do not have to panic because he's not abandoning them. Later in the same chapter, he will talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit, who will guide them and be with them forever. This whole time, Jesus' mission has been to reveal the Father's heart, his character, his will, his purpose, and his invitation for humans to come home. Now, Jesus is preparing to return to the place that the tabernacle and the temple symbolize. He's going back to the garden. He is the ultimate high priest who enters into the truest holy of holies. Are you still with me? He is the one, he is the one that we have been waiting for to re-enter Eden on our behalf and to open the door for us. How is he going to do that? By laying down his own life at the sword of the cherubim. Are you following? Yo, he's incredible, dog. Like, I can't believe this man was willing to do that. Amen. 
And guess what? When he goes by the sword, he offers his, life, his blameless lifeblood before the Father. And I was talking about this at work with our brother Tim Mackey and our other co-workers at Bible Project. And he had a really helpful way of framing this. He said, the Father sent the Son out of Eden to die with us, because of us, and for us. That is, to re-enter Eden to appeal to the Father by his innocent blood, which, accept, which God accepts as a substitute representative that covers for all of humanity. This keys in on what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 9. Starting in 11, he says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all, by, once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Yo, the gate is open. And not only that, the author of Hebrews says in the next chapter, we can enter the Holy of Holies with confidence by the blood of Jesus. We don't have to be afraid of the cherubim at the gateway. We can walk through with confidence because the gate to the Father's house has been opened. Come on. And I'm not asking you to respond. I'm just like, yo, he's incredible. God is faithful to complete whatever he begins. He's proven that. And access to God's divine life and presence in the Holy of Holies is not restricted to one high priest. It's open to anyone who will want to be one of his children. <laughs> but it's through Jesus. The Father and his home have been made available for us through the Son. The way back into the garden was guarded by the cherubim, but Jesus has gone through the sword, and now he is the way to the Father. The lies and deception of the snake have affected us outside of Eden, convincing us to live according to our own definitions of what is good and what is not. We've been eating from the knowledge of the tree of good and bad for thousands of years. But Jesus is the snake crusher and the embodiment of God's wisdom. We can now refuse to live according to our own definitions of what is good and bad, and we can operate under his direction. We don't have to take from this tree. We can follow the one who will guide us into what is good because he is truth. And yes, we are dying outside of Eden, but Jesus is not only the way to the tree of life, he is life. We eat, when we eat from him, we, we call it the Eucharist or communion, whatever your tradition is. What are we doing besides eating from the tree of life? What was once taken off of a tree has been put back on a tree. And now we eat of him. He said, I break this and I want you to eat. I'm spilling this and I want you to drink. Come and taste of the tree of life. I am the center of it all. Where was the tree in the garden? But in the center. Come taste and eat. I 
our longing to live with the Father and partake of the quality of life that he offers in the garden is satisfied in Jesus. And I'm going to tell you what, and I'm going to say this boldly. No other teacher, no other leader, no other priest, no other king, no other prophet could ever re-enter Eden on our behalf. Only Jesus. Period. The exclusive statement is exclusive. But guess what? It's also inclusive because anyone who comes to faith in him, who trusts their lives, can re-enter the garden behind him. Are you with me still? And John the visionary got a taste of the fullness of the return to Eden. When Jesus stepped on the scene, he came crashing the garden back into our present reality. But it's not fully here yet. But John sees what is to come. He says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. That's good. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. They will reign forever and ever. My God, can somebody say hallelujah? Hallelujah. Man, I long for this. And the good news is that this Edenic quality of life can be tasted in the here and now in our discipleship to Jesus. That's the good news. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is synonymous with the garden. Where heaven and earth overlap, the garden takes place. And just as the humans in the garden could experience Eden life through their obedience to God's instructions, you and I can experience Eden life right now in our obedience to the instructions of Jesus. Maybe there's someone at work who for whatever reason treats you with hostility and unkindness, how will you respond tomorrow? If you choose to obey Jesus' teachings not to respond with retaliation but with enemy love, you will taste eating life in that moment. But not only will you taste the quality of life of the garden, but you will also be a conduit for the other person to experience it right now. Why is it that you didn't respond to me with the unkindness I shared to you? Oh, because, bro, I have a sense of reality that is greater than what's going on between you and I right now. And that's not an arrogant statement. That's just real. Or maybe you're a part of a community here at Bridgetown. Go you. And you might be burdened by some of your life circumstances or your sin, etc. But the idea of sharing what's going on makes you uneasy. And I understand that. Make sure you're in a safe space before you share there's wisdom to that. And if, if this is a safe space to you, and I, I just want to encourage you that being vulnerable with your community is a taste of eating life. Adam and Eve covered themselves before God and one another after feeling ashamed. And we do so metaphorically. But in the Father's house, 
you are free to be exposed. Not only to the Father, but to one another. It is in the Father's house that our deep desire to be seen and known can be satisfied. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for 30 plus years. Anybody? Come on, let's go. Thanks, Casey. (laughs) And you've been consistently praying for God's kingdom to come for decades and for his will to be done. And when you do so, you are pleading for Eden life to come crashing into our day. When the kingdom comes, the garden comes crashing, yo. I would not be here if y'all did not pray for the kingdom to come for the last couple decades of your discipleship to Jesus. I am one of the fruit of the labor of praying. And guess what? We need more fruit to be born. So please, for those of you who've been praying for the last 30 plus years for the kingdom to come crashing in, please continue to pray. People need to taste and see that the king is real and that he's good and that he offers a life that is good, true, and beautiful. And there's nobody else that could offer the quality of life that Jesus does. There are plenty of rabbis out here, but he is alone the greatest that we've ever seen. There's other people who can teach you how to experience good things in this life, but this man has says, no, I have a sense of reality that no other teacher can pull the veil back on. All right, let me calm down, bro. Okay. All I'm trying to say is please keep praying. And thank you for doing so. Maybe you're stirred about Jesus' invitation to the Father's house. Let me say this to you, brother and sister. Um, The Father's house is open. So come home. There's no reason to wait. There's not going to be a better time. It's not when you got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and figure it out. It's not when you feel like you got to throw your dirty dishes in the dishwasher and hopefully, all right, let me clean them first. No. He says, I will wash you clean. Put the dishes down. What if you don't have tomorrow? This isn't a guilt trip. Today is a great opportunity to come home. This man has opened the door. He's opened the gate. He is the door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The garden is accessible right now. What are we waiting for? Maybe you and the Father are rocking out strong right now. Woo! Maybe you've strayed away from home and you feel that itch to come back. It can be scratched today. Maybe you don't know the Father at all and you want to for the first time. Please come home. Jesus has declared that the Father is accessible through him. So the question I want to leave you with is, will you trust him? So in closing, why did the Father send his son to grab us and bring us back into the garden? Because he loves us. I could walk off stage right now. I have two kids that I get to call my own, and I will do anything for them. But that is, I'm not even scratching the surface of God's affection for us as his children. But it is my avenue to see, to get a glimpse of his affections for us. 
Why did he do this? Because he loves us. He's always wanted to live with us as his beloved images. He's always wanted to share his divine life with us. So much so that the son came to make that happen. What Jay-Z and Beanie Siegel and Scarface were longing for could only be found in Jesus. What you and I have been longing for is only found in Jesus.